Continuing on through our series, The Rise of the Christian Church, we're in Acts chapter 6 this morning, so if you want to take out your Bibles and open up there. One of the great challenges uh, for parents and families in communities like Fairbanks, Alaska, is to keep our growing kids in clothes, especially winter gear, right? The season rolls around and you get out the big boxes and you start rifling through what's in there. Is this coat going to fit you again this year? Can we squeeze one more year out of these boots? Can you just wrinkle up your toes? You're going to need new gloves for sure. And we kind of go through this, this whole bit and we get pretty excited when uh, we find something that can be passed down, right? Oh, your brother's coat will fit you this year. Yes! Scratch that off the purchase list, saving some money. Uh, or uh, you get something like, um, so, okay, bud, I guess what? You're going you're gonna to have to wear your sister's boots this year, you know? But dad, they're pink, you know? We'll spray paint them. It's all right. We'll make them look cool. You're going to be fine. Um, over the years, the John's family has been the beneficiary of lots of hand-me-downs uh, from some of you and your families, and that's totally cool when somebody gives you that stuff. And then we've passed off bags of clothes and gear too. And it's kind of beautiful and fun when you look around the church and, you know, a little girl runs by and you're like, oh, Ellie used to wear that coat, you know. And you kind of see your old clothes on the backs of someone else. Uh, it's kind of sweet and, and fun. Um, we had a particular coat purchase that was epic a few years back. Actually, it was in 2006. We purchased, uh, it was a Land's End winter coat uh, for Aiden. And I have pictures, because this coat is still going strong. 16 years. So here it is. He got it first. Look at those little guys. That's, that's not even the lab we have now. That's the, that's the lab we used to have. That's Gunner. We have another one since then. So Aiden got it first, uh, and then here he is. I think we're out skiing on this one. Same thing. And then Ellie wore it, but uh, I don't have any pictures of that because Ellie's a middle child, and you know how that goes. The middle children don't have any pictures, right? <coughs> and then, um, then Gus wore it. There it is again. And then we passed it off to uh, nieces and nephews. So here we go. Here's Soren wearing it down, and I think this is in Valdez uh, with their dog. And next to him is Ever, and wouldn't you know, she's rocking it right now. And now it's been improved with this beautiful fur ruff and uh, will, intends to go down to one more kiddo. And who knows, maybe it'll make its way back to Fairbanks, Alaska and start traveling through the church again. It kind of reminded me of that book title, you know, the, uh, the Sisterhood of the Traveling Pants. This is like the Brotherhood of the Traveling Coat here. So anyways, that's been... Uh, kind of fun for us to laugh about this, this particular coat um, and how it's just been a blessing for our families. Um, so these are some of the, the family growing pains that uh, Fairbankson's experience. And in our passage today, we see some growing pains felt by the early church. And um, our passage begins by talking about the growth that is occurring. And we kind of have to start off by saying, praise God. The church was growing. Uh, against the threats of persecution and against the internal threats of corruption with uh, Ananias and Sapphira, the church kept growing. And as the church grew, new problems emerged. 
that required flexibility and humility and new structures. And it required a keen eye on the right priorities in order to stay a healthy, growing church. Uh, There are a lot of churches who are at risk of dying because they live by what is known as the seven last words of the church. You know what those are? How did we do it last year? How did we do it last year? A church that gets stuck in that rut of just replicating things and never having a vision for the future and for what needs to be done or tending to its, its, its health uh, is in jeopardy as well. So kind of the core principle we're going to pull out this morning, healthy churches are willing to make careful, tactical changes in order to stay on mission, on ministry, and on message. Uh, So let's look together at chapter 6, verse 1. In those days when the number of disciples was increasing, the Hellenistic Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. We're going to stop right there. First of all, I want to just be explicit about this. A healthy church experiences growth and growing pains. The two go together. Um, the The numeric growth of a church is presented throughout the book of Acts as a healthy a good and a desirable thing, a biblical thing. Um, throughout, throughout the book of Acts, we keep running into this phrase, and the word of God spread and the number of disciples increased. Our whole passage is bracketed by two of those statements today in verse 1 and verse 7. More than 12 times in the book as a, as a whole is that phrase repeated. So in Acts, church growth is consistently presented, numeric growth is consistently presented as a sign of God's work in and among the people in spite of the threats, some of the threats that we've already looked at. Um, And I will tell you this, if you happen to be a member of Bethel Church, uh, you sort of signed an agreement that, uh, that you affirm the covenant of the church, and in that covenant, it also says that you will promote the spiritual and numeric growth of the church. So I bring all this up, because I don't want to assume that that's known or believed or even celebrated by all. In fact, uh, I think to many people, numeric growth in the church doesn't feel like a gain. It very often feels like a loss, right? If the church gets any bigger, then I won't know everybody. Well, we passed that a long time ago. If the church gets any bigger... I won't know everybody in my service. Okay, if the church gets any bigger, I won't know everybody in my section. Still probably nobody here knows everybody in their section. Or if the church gets any bigger, I won't know everybody in my row. Even then, that many of you may not know everybody in your row. But it it goes beyond that too. Somebody might say, if the church gets any bigger, then I'm going to have to accommodate the preferences of others that are not my own. As the church gets larger, there are going to be new problems that emerge, and there are going to be new solutions, and that means change, and I hate change. Actually, I don't think most people hate change, as long as they get to make it. We hate change that's being imposed on us, right? And typically, the bigger an organization, and the church is an organization and an organism, it's both, 
But typically, the bigger an organization gets, the more complicated are its systems, and that's just the nature of things. So I think a lot of people right here this morning would say, in theory, sure, I'm for church growth. Sounds like a good thing. But in experience, personal experience, I'm a little reluctant. Sometimes I feel apprehensive or uneasy or I feel a sense of loss. All right, let me nuance this a bit because you guys know me. Um, Not every method of church growth is good, right? Uh, There are many examples of uh, uh, churches uh, that are growing as the result of unhealth or unhealthy things. There are numbers of... um, or numeric church growth is a desirable outcome, but it can't be the singular focus, or we're going to miss some things, right? Uh, one of our elders gave me a great illustration on this a while back. He said that, you know, the, the poison roundup? Do you know how it actually works? It accelerates the growth of the plant to the point of its demise. That's how it kills it. So that could happen in a, in a church too. Uh, and we all know there are plenty of bad churches that are growing. So we don't want growth at any cost. We don't want growth by any means. We want growth to come as a result of health, and we don't want to sacrifice health at the altar of growth. Fair enough? Some of you are still thinking through it. We want to see church growth through conversions. We want to see people coming to faith in Jesus Christ. We don't just want to gather up people from somebody else's church. Uh, that's not church growth. That's just swapping sheep, right? If you think about it, if, if one church in town grew by 500 people, but the net number of Christians in town didn't grow at all, did the church grow? No. We just traded people. So overall, healthy organisms grow, and healthy churches tend to grow. And that means when healthy growth occurs, some of us will have to take ourselves aside And tell ourselves, self, I need to celebrate good, healthy growth. I need to confront my sense of personal loss. I need to work hard to incorporate new people into the family of God and rejoice that they can be blessed by the same thing that I've enjoyed and been blessed with in my own time in this church. So let's go back to our church or our passage here. The church in Jerusalem is growing. Praise God. It's a good thing. Um, but as we see, this particular growth uh, created some growing pains, some real pains. A dispute emerged, uh, sort of between two groups in the church of Jerusalem. Most likely, these two groups um, are worshiping in different synagogues, okay? So most likely, uh, they're different fellowships, but you know, still under the, the gathering of the church here. Um, but let's unpack some of the details here. First of all, food distribution. From, from cover to cover in Scripture, God consistently um, implores his people to look after uh, widows and the poor and, and among them and those who are especially vulnerable through no fault of their own. That is a consistent thing. Um, and so these guys are, are doing that or are attempting that, trying to do it well. But we have two different groups, the Hebraic group of Jews and the Hellenistic group, Okay. So let's understand who these two different groups are. The Hebraic Jews are those who uh, are locals. They live in Jerusalem, have for a long time. They speak Aramaic, the common language of the day. Uh, They would embrace local customs, local values, and the local language. The uh, Hellenistic Jews, or the Grecian Jews, 
These are folks who would have lived out of town for a while and have since moved back into Jerusalem, but their first language is Greek. It's not Aramaic. So the divide here is primarily linguistic uh, on, on sort of what one's first language would be. You can imagine, uh, maybe some of you, anybody here speak a little Spanish, but you know not a lot? That's me. I could listen to somebody's conversation and go, oh, I think I know what they're talking about. But if I was asked to speak into it, no, that's a no-go. But can you imagine worshiping in a church in, your, in a second language or a language you barely know? It'd be very difficult. So that's why they're kind of separated out. And this is important because we need to understand this isn't a problem of racism, right? Everybody here is, everybody in these fellowships are Jewish. There, there are, in fact, no non-Jewish Christians really at this point. The gospel has not gone to the Gentiles yet. Um, neither is this seem to be uh, an intentional act of discrimination. Some people would dispute that. Um, I just don't think it's presented that way. And the Bible is perfectly happy to point out instances where that might be the case. We look in the book of James, and we see the caution there, don't show favoritism to those who are wealthy over those who are not, right? And there doesn't seem to be any intention behind this here. So by all accounts, this just seems to be an unintended oversight. The, the church numbers, uh, it grew to the point where it's outpaced the structure of this young church. And they had to kind of create some scaffolding to hold it up. Uh, this made me think of, I, you guys know I grew up in Southern California in the desert um, of Apple Valley. And we used to have um, these grapevines planted in our backyard um, around the patio. So we had these three trellises. And with all of that sun and heat, they just took off and grew like crazy. And it was cool because in the summertime when it was so hot, uh, the sun would sort of hit those big leaves and that big vine and, and shade uh, the patio. And then later in the season, you could just eat grapes right off of the vine, which was totally fun. Um, and then when winter came, of course, the leaves died off, and that allowed the sunlight to come in and warm up the house. So it kind of worked really nice for, for the home. It was a good plan that my dad put together. But in the summer, they would grow so fast, you'd have to go out there every couple days and rethread the vine through the trellis, or it would just pile up on itself and become a mess. And that's what, that's what the apostles are doing here. They need, a, they need this living organism, the church, to have healthy structures so that it can continue to grow up onto it. And that's what they do. Verse 2. So the twelve gathered all the disciples together and said, it would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. Brothers and sisters, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them and will give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the word. This proposal pleased the whole group. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, also Philip and Prochorus and Nicanor and Timon and Parmenius and Nicholas from Antioch, a convert to Judaism. They presented these men to the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. So the word of God spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. So the second thing I want to point out here is this. A healthy church stays on mission. To the credit of the early disciples, they recognized there was a risk here. There was a threat. Even in this important ministry to the widows, 
something that they wanted to continue, if not done right, it could divert too many uh, energies to it instead of to the word and to prayer. And so this kind of delegation that they practice here, this is the same thing we see in the Old Testament. If you remember the story of Moses, right? When the people are lined up to come and visit with him and hear his advice and counsel until his father-in-law comes, you know, leave it to a father-in-law. Jethro rolls up and says, what you're doing is not good. You need to choose some people and delegate out some ministry here. And thankfully, the apostles do the same thing here. Um, so as the, as the church uh, begins to rise, uh, it also has this sort of progression of threats which are addressed. Remember, the first one was persecution. They arrested the uh, disciples or the apostles and said, don't preach in this name any longer. They jailed them and eventually flogged them, Right? And then we saw corruption within the, within the church, and that threatened its mission too. Ananias and Sapphira misrepresented their financial gift in a self-serving kind of way. And now we find that there is a particular, and I think there's two things here, distraction and disunity uh, that threatened the church. This ministry of looking after widows, this was a good thing. This was something the church should have continued to do But even a ministry, a good ministry with an improper balance or with even sort of uh, improper personnel can lead to what we often call mission creep, right? Where we get off track. The wrong people doing the wrong jobs or even wrong emphasis on a good ministry, these things are preludes to mission creep. I want to give you an example of this. I uh, brought with me here the charter sort of the mission statement of a university. I'm going to read it to you. I want to see if you can guess the university. Okay? Here it goes. Everyone shall consider as the main end of his life and studies to know God and Jesus Christ, which is eternal life. What what university do you think? Got any ideas? Throw them out. You hate it when they get it the first time. Harvard, Harvard, Auburn, (laughs) nope, it's Harvard. That's how they started. Let me read it one more time. Now you have Harvard University in your mind. Everyone shall consider as the main end of his life and studies to know God and Jesus Christ, which is eternal life. That's stunning. Harvard is now one of the most liberal universities there is. That is mission creep. Doesn't happen all at once. Happens little by little by little. And this same kind of threat is there for the church. Thankfully, the apostles, even while they want to maintain this good ministry of distributing food, they don't let it take them off of mission. Um, There's another risk here too, and I'm going to call it uh, disunity. It says uh, the Hellenistic Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews, right? Complained. But the Greek word here is interesting. It's gongismos. Gongismos. And this word actually means, and a little richer, I think, it means to murmur, to grumble, to mutter. It's an under-the-breath kind of, I would call it griping. And, And I think it's important to understand this because this isn't like a constructive criticism. It's not, hey, um, apostles, 
We've noticed something happening here. We're sure it's an oversight. You're good guys. We like you. We're for the ministry. But there's something being missed, and maybe we could talk about some solutions. It's, they're just grumbling. They're just murmuring. In fact, the word here, gongismos, in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the same word is used of the Israelites and what they were saying toward Moses in the wilderness when they grumbled against him. This wasn't constructive criticism. So there's a real threat here too, that disunity could emerge, that there could be a split in the church between these two different groups and over the pains that had happened there. Thankfully, the apostles respond with humility. They listen even to the bad complaints or or complaints done badly. And they're humble enough to make uh, different decisions. They devise a solution that protects both the ministry and the mission of the church. All right, third point here. And this one I'm going to personalize. Healthy Christians, healthy Christians stay on ministry. And what I mean by this is, it is wise for you to know what your spiritual gift is. What is it that God has entrusted to you and called you to use in his service? And I think all of us should strive to serve within our area uh, of gifting. Um, And I think I included in the questions on the back, I included the four passages where you find sort of spiritual gifts listed throughout the church, uh, throughout the, the New Testament. And I don't know that this is every one of them, but Let's start with what the Bible says and prioritize that, right? But in 1 Peter 4.10, Peter says this. He, he implores us to this. Each of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. If anyone speaks, they should do it as one who speaks the very words of God. If anyone serves, they should do it with the strength God provides so that in all things, God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To him be the glory and power forever and ever. Amen. We're implored to use our spiritual gifting. So that's the first point here. Know your ministry gifting. And then secondly, know your ministry calling. Where are you called to deploy this? I think the apostles make a striking statement here. They say, it would not be right These are strong words. It would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. And they're not putting down waiting on tables. This isn't pejorative. They just know what they've been called to and what they've been gifted to do, and they know they have to stay on mission and on their ministry that God has given to them. In my life, this really helps me. um, This is a helpful grid for me to consider requests that come my way. I get offers at times. People may call up and say, hey, would you serve on this particular board in town? Or would you help lead this other ministry? Or would you speak at this event? Or something like that. And as those come to me, one of the things, the grid that I run it through is, is this a part of my gifting? Is this a part of my calling? And it helps me say no to a lot of things with a clear conscience. Because I know what God has called me to. Um, I love the old leadership quote by uh, Dave Kraft. He says that he who is available to everyone isn't much good to anyone. So how, do, how does one do this? Uh, one of the things you can do, you can take a spiritual gift inventory. You can, there, there are tests that you can take. And that's one way some of you will love that because you're test takers. You like Myers-Briggs and, 
Enneagram and all the things, the disc and whatever, and you'd love to take a personal uh, spiritual gifting test. But I think even better than that, just do it interpersonally, do it organically. Go to your spouse, go to your sibling, go to your friend, go to people in your small group, and then ask them this question. Here's the question not to ask them. Don't ask them, what do you think my spiritual gift is? Which sounds a little pompous, right? I'm God's gift to you. In what way is it? I think better to ask the question, how do you think God uses me to build up the body of Christ? How do you think God uses me to build up the body of Christ? If God has distributed spiritual gifts among the body so that they will serve and bless and edify one another, then I think the body is very often going to be the best judge of what your spiritual gifts are. They can say, this is how it is that you're a blessing to me or how you build up the church. So I think we can lean into that. Um, I love the uh, Frederick Beekner quote about calling. Some of you might be like, I know gift, but where, where's my calling? What am I called to? Um, he says this, the place God calls you to is the place where your deep gladness and the world's deep hunger meet. I, I like that. I like that. Um, I remember very strongly when God called me to be a pastor. It is a powerful moment for me. I was sitting in the gymnasium floor. I still get emotional when I talk about it. I was sitting on the gymnasium floor at Biola University. I grew up in a missionary home. We were poor all the time, hated it. And so I had two goals. I wanted to be well-known, and I wanted to be well-paid. I didn't tell anybody this, but in my head, I want to be well-known, I want to be well-paid. And... Uh, so I decided I'm going into medicine. So I went to Biola to become a doctor. Not because I liked medicine. I just wanted to be well-known and well-paid. Those were my very carnal and selfish goals. I'm sitting there on the gym, uh, gymnasium floor in chapel, and President Clyde Cook, who is just a lovely, humble man that was just saturated uh, with the word of God, was, was speaking on 1 Peter chapter 1, how the glory of man is like the grass of the field, which is here today and gone tomorrow. But the word of the Lord stands forever. I was totally exposed. It was like these two goals were just laid open and just demolished. And I just remember humbling, just repenting of that. And on my way out of the gymnasium, out of chapel that day, walking across the threshold, my prayer was very simple. I said, God, I'll go. I'll do whatever you want me to do. And I'll go wherever you want me to go. And I wish I had said, Hawaii would be nice. <laughs> I didn't say that. Um, calling. Uh, calling is, I don't think, it's just about um, you know, calling one to be a, a pastor or something like that. I think God calls us to lots of things. If you're skilled with your hands, then you're called to be a craftsman for Christ. If you've got music in you, you're called to be a blessing to the body of Christ through, through your music. Use what God has given to you and spend yourself in his service and you'll be on your calling. Um, let's move on here, verse three. Look at the solution that they come up with. Um, actually, I won't reread this, but you see the names there. What's interesting about all of the names of the people that they have chosen to sort of pick up this, uh, this ministry of service, all of these names are Greek names. And that's kind of lost on us as modern readers here. But essentially what's happening is the apostles have said, 
all right, we've got these two different fellowships. We've got the Aramaic speaking, right? Are these the Hebraic Jews? And then we've got the Grecian Jews over here, and they speak Greek. And their widows are not getting the food distribution. So what are we going to do about this? Choose from among yourselves seven men known to be filled with the Holy Spirit and wisdom. And then they lay hands on them and bless them and empower them to serve in this other fellowship. And so it's kind of beautiful because what happens here is they don't gather up all authority and all powers and everything to themselves. They delegate and send out others. It's a beautiful sort of sign of trust and trust that God is in control of this movement. The primary point here is that we cannot pick this up because we've got to stay on mission, what God has called us to, to be about the ministry of the word and prayer. And that's what they focus on. And our last point here, healthy churches stay on message. They stay on message. And what I mean by this is the gospel is our message. This is the instrument that God in his wisdom has given to the church to proclaim. This is the main thing. This is the mission. This is the ministry. This is the message. And we have to use the gospel uh, for God's purposes here. So that's what's in jeopardy of, of sort of being neglected here, the gospel itself. Let me ask you this. The two passages, um, verses 1 and verse 7, where they said it would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word. And then in verse 7 where it says, so the word of God spread. Let me ask you this. What word was that? The scripture hadn't been written yet, the New Testament. So what word was it they were proclaiming? They're proclaiming the gospel. They're proclaiming what Peter had said time and time again up to this point in the book of Acts. Certainly they're reminding people of Christ's teachings as well. But the word that they were pro uh, proclaiming was essentially the gospel. And we need to recall that and remember that that is the main thing, that is our main mission that God has called us to. Um, D.A. Carson, who is a well-known um, Christian scholar and author, um, has said this. He says, losing the gospel doesn't happen all at once, but it's more like a four-generational process. And it goes something like this. First, the gospel is accepted. Then the gospel is assumed. Then the gospel is confused. And then the gospel is lost. And a church ends up like a Harvard. The next thing you know, they're turning them into coffee houses and art galleries because they've lost the gospel. It is the lifeblood of the church. It's our mission. It's our message. It's our ministry. Um, I'm going to say something that's going to be a little controversial. Um, Oh, well, I like the pastor who says, um, I'm sorry I stepped on your toes. I was aiming for your heart. <laughs> so I'll preface with this. Uh, very often I will have people come to me with ideas um, of things that could be done. Uh, they want to mobilize the church to some end. And they'll come to me with something like, Pastor, we've got to mobilize the church for political action. We've got to save this nation. Or, pastor, we've got to mobilize the church for some social issues going around. We need to get prayer back in school. We need to get the Bible taught in school. I'll interject right there and say I love separation of church and state because I don't want a Satanist teaching my child to pray in school. I'll take the spiritual education home. 
So I'll just say that real quick. Or we've got to mobilize the church because we've got these justice issues going around and LGBTQ plus is sweeping the nation and we've got to stop it. We've got to mobilize the church. We've got to mobilize the church to rise up against abortion rights. Okay. All of these things have an element of goodness to them and an aspect to which the church and Christians are to stand against. But to mobilize the church and pick any of these things up as its mission would be to abdicate what God has called us to. These things are not mission of God. These things, for the most part, they're good, they're right, they're noble. However, none of them is the mission of God or the message of the church. If the church were to set down its mission to go after even these good issues, these good things, and neglect the mission of God, nobody comes and picks this up. So we could solve some... I have no doubt that in mobilizing the church to many of these things in the world, we could make a profound change in those areas. But we would end up solving social issues and neglecting the spiritual issue of people's souls and eternity in the kingdom of God. And nobody is coming to do that. That is the mission of the church. You understand that what I'm saying here, there are implications of our gospel ministry that flow out into these things, so I'm not saying they're bad things or not to be done, but they're not the main thing. They're not the main thing. Um, To stay on mission to stay on ministry, to stay on message, the church needs to be flexible enough to change tactics and to be gracious when doing so so we can be focused on what God has called us to. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for the example of the early church here. This was a great ministry of taking care of the widows and it needed to continue at the right level but it couldn't derail the church. It couldn't distract against the mission, the ministry, and the message. And Lord, I pray that we as a church too, that we would keep ourselves focused, that we would not fall into mission creep, that even good things that we might do as individuals or ministries we might have as a church, Lord, that they would not displace or take energy away from the proclamation of the gospel and the word of God and prayer. Thank you for the amazing, powerful resources you have given to the church. And I pray that we would not lose, um, Lord, our vital ministry in the community of the gospel. I pray that we would not simply be a self-serving, insular institution, but that we would recall that you have left us in this world for a purpose, to be your witnesses and to disciple those who come to saving faith in Jesus Christ. And may we do those well. We pray this in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen.